Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley. I'm a HR professional. Hey, Em. Hey, Shell. I'm Em, and I work in recruitment and customer experience for a business called Foresight's Recruitment and HR. And today, we have the absolute privilege of having Dr. Julian Waters Lynch with us online, connecting in. Welcome, Jules. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Pleasure to speak with you. We've been really looking forward to this time with you today. Jules, you are a lecturer in innovation, entrepreneurship, organizational design, you're also a muso, so you're kind of like this eclectic, like magical unicorn mix of all these things. That's what I used to have on my uh, LinkedIn profile, but it turned out no one wanted to hire one of those. <laughs> no <laughs> one wanted to myself look more conventional. Did you? You just dulled it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that, but we will. No, it- try for me to talk about myself, or <laughs> yeah, this is your platform just to describe yourself however you will. But no, it's great to have you with us and. I was studying at RMIT, but I I think we worked out I must have just missed you when you came on and started lecturing. And can I just ask, what did you do? What was your actual PhD in? It's in management, but the the focus of my work was about co-working in Melbourne. So I wrote a thesis on the early co-working, that being co-working spaces, you know. So when I started that, there were maybe four and now there's, or last I counted, there are about 180 in Melbourne. So that, that industry grew a lot and, and it's related to the things we'll probably talk about around changing character of work, changing place of work, gig economy, all of that. Yeah, great. So on that, Julian, tell us your career story so far. Just like that. Yeah. I got interested in the world at 16, 17, uh, principally around big questions, you know, climate change, the economy, inequality, things like that. And I didn't know what to do with it, but I was reading books by Peter Singer and, and David Susan's environment. And so I, I first studied economics and um, what was it? biogeography and uh, philosophy. So I went to Melbourne University and I, I, was, I was taking economics, I was taking classes in science and philosophy and trying to work out what the hell to do with my life, but also what to do about the world. You know, the love on the side was um, music. Uh, it might be a pretty nerdy kind of love. Um, but so I was, I started working as a musician, being Miles Davis and, you know, classic jazz um, artists on the side. And I ended up dropping out of university and working as a musician for maybe five years, like early 20s. And for the record, this was when bands like Cat Empire were around and there was this, um, I mean, they're still around, but they're successful. Many of us weren't, <laughs> you know. But there, there was this interesting scene in, around Fitzroy and parts of Melbourne like that, uh, sort of intersection between jazz musicians and hip-hop and um, the, the, the white kid version of it in Melbourne. So I did that and that was interesting. It was, it was a real gig economy, you know, working as an artist and trying to make a living that way. But I was still interested in all these questions about the world and they weren't really answered through 
playing in bands in Melbourne and playing wedding gigs and stuff. So I went back and did a degree in international studies at RMIT. I wanted to go somewhere different. And that really, the focus of that was globalization. You know, it was about how is the world changing? Right. Is happening with technology? Uh, what is what does it all mean? What does technology mean, et cetera? I ended up working for the Australians and they've actually put out some really good work recently around the future of work and young people. So we might talk about that. Then I had a quarter life crisis and, and went back to Latin America, skipped over a section, but I spent some time there in my twenties. So I, I lived in Argentina for three or four years. And um, I, in the midst of that, I discovered this thing called co-working. And it seemed to me at the time, an interesting answer to these questions that I was pursuing around um, how do people organize work differently? How do people participate in an environment where they can learn more organic actual courses, formal courses? How do you create an environment that's more redolent in social innovation, things like this? So at the time, that early phase of co-working was an interesting place to do that. I tried to open a space in Argentina. It didn't work very well because I what I was doing and, you know, I was a foreigner and there's a 30% inflation rate and wow. you know, it's an it's a interesting country in many ways. But this is getting up to today. So I came back, um, enrolled in a PhD and really spent five years um, like an anthropologist in the co-working space, theorizing about the changing nature of work. And that brings me to today where I'm an academic, um, continuing to research that, but also teach um, and do the other things academics do. Wow. You've had such a diverse employment experience. If you were to look at that as your career journey, there's been so much you've done in such a short space of time. How have those experiences felt for you in terms of, I suppose, going from musician, artist, now to academia? Like that seems really kind of um, an interesting journey. Sure. I, I can talk about it. I mean, calling it a career, a lot of things in life make sense or you you can paint them in a better light retrospectively. But the reality was I didn't know what the fuck I was doing for most of that time. <laughs> it wasn't that there was some prospective career plan here. Yeah. You know, I didn't feel that urgency to go, oh, my God, if I don't get my shit together by tomorrow, you know, my life's over. I thought, well, I can go and do this internship in Thailand or I can study in China or I can spend time in Latin America learning Spanish, do these various things, and it will somehow gather as a richer picture of skills, a richer yeah. set of skills. Um, and I feel like I've worked out how to tell that story now. My 30 is very difficult because when I turned up, I couldn't, I couldn't just go to Deloitte and say, here's what I do, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hire me because it was this weird bundle, you know, jazz musician, English translator, sort of philosophically minded wanderer, you know, um, that didn't translate into we need a designer right now. Mm. Yeah. So I might have bypassed that question, but I, I could talk more about how I think these skills specifically show up in my work. But I just want to disabuse any listening idea that there was some plan here, you know, yeah. like many people just kind of bumming around the world trying to figure stuff out on the fly. Yeah. You do seem like somebody uh, that has this ability to come up with a range of different questions and then maybe just follow, you know, paths to try and find the answers. Are you somebody that's quite comfortable with a level of ambiguity? Because I guess the reason I ask that question is we often have people who listen to this podcast or that we come into contact with and when it comes to their career, they have this belief that they feel like they need to have the answers and they need to know exactly what they want to do and they need to be doing it right now. Whereas it's quite refreshing to hear you, even in retrospect, talk about what your career story has been so far with you know, as you say, you can make sense of it 
with hindsight, but along the way, it almost feels like you're just sort of following questions and a level of interest. I certainly wouldn't advise it as a strategy to follow, but I think people, some people just, this is what they have to do. Mm -hmm. Like if someone, I was thinking about coming on this podcast and saying, well, what's all the shit I wish someone had told me when I was 20, right? (laughs) Like, and then it's taken me 20 years to figure out. Yeah. And then I go, the, the next question is, yeah, but if someone like me, some schmuck with a Seinfeld-esque mullet <laughs> and a haircut for th- and, you know, told me this stuff, would have I listened? Uh, I don't know, 50-50, right? So I appreciate the point about ambiguity tolerance and I, I wondered if it was because of my answers where I was just rambling around the place. But one thing I would say is um, as music or I- improvise music more broadly and, and improvise anything, you know, in, in pro theatre, it's just a great forum to have to develop a tolerance and indeed a comfort and maybe even uh, a, an aptitude and appreciation for ambiguity, mm. it, thriving under uncertain conditions of uncertainty, because that's what the gig is. You know, what, what good jazz musicians do, a good piano trio or something, they turn up and they play stuff they've never played before. Wow. It, it, it's not jazz if you're, if you're, you know, playing note for note what's on a page. It's jazz when you listen to the bass player and go, wow, He's gone a different way. What if I try this chord? And you have to learn in a way that's quite non-rational. You know, you have to get good enough at your discipline that you can respond organically in the moment. Theater, right? vibe you it out. Vibe I, I, it out, yeah. And I love what you're saying there, Julian, in terms of as, as people, we do need to build that tolerance for ambiguity. And as we're going to, as we're talking about with your understanding of the future of work, the changing nature of work. I'm kind of keen to dig into that a bit more because sometimes when I hear people talk about what does the future of work look like, there is so much ambiguity, uh, lots of uncertainty, and sometimes it incites fear or um, I guess that fear of AI, robots, I know I think of like Will Smith in like iRobot. Oh my gosh, robots taking over the world. Robot's going to take my job. That's it. But what I hear you saying there is you've kind of developed that um, ability to improvise. And and I guess I see that being necessary um, when we consider the changing nature of work. Can you talk to me? What's your take on the future of work? And is it always about AI or automation? Or what what does it mean to you? It's a great question. And I want to link it to that point about ambiguity tolerance too. So yes, it's true that when you see some futurist stand up on a stage and recite a bunch of acronyms, you know, um, AI, IoT, DTO, blockchains, uh, what's else in there is usually autonomous vehicles, you know, 5G, centric vision of what the future is going to be like. And there might be a few people listening to that that go, awesome, I'm glad I, I know how to code or something. But a lot of people will be going, well, where do I fit in that future, right? It's not to dismiss the technology waves. Like I think these these things are important to be aware of just in, in, in the same way that somebody in 1992 saying the World Wide Web is going to be big, you know, you would have been silly in almost any career now, but especially with journalism more. Um, to say, ah, yeah, I don't think so. I think the internet's overrated, right? Yeah. Um, so often these technologies take a little longer. You know, they're, they're, they're underwhelming in the short term and overwhelming in the long term. Wow. So to quote one of the, the laws about this stuff. However, here's the catch. That doesn't mean that um, there won't be spaces for productive work for humans to do, right? 
I think in many ways, the notion of job is a, the wrong unit of analysis to think about here. I think titles is a better way to think about this. So job jobs a collection ultimately of tasks, right? A job, you know, you're an accountant in 1995, that looks a certain way. You're an accountant in 1955, that looks a, it looks a certain way. And presumably in 1935, they'll be all there, um, but the collection of tasks might be quite different. Yeah, so that, that's the first point. And then maybe I'll just say something about uh, the, the way I think about this in terms of principles. So economists make this distinction between routine for these are the things that are very procedural, you know, step by step, and non-routine. Uh, so these are things that at the, at the extreme extent is like the jazz musician improvising. Mm. But, you know, writing a novel, um, giving a talk, hosting a podcast chat, you know, the, the, there's countless things that can make up everyday experiences of work that rely on these non-routine forms of um, skill and ability. And the AI kind of world, the technological um, innovations, they tend to target these routine forms of work, what are sometimes called algorithmic, right? They can be mapped out, proceduralized. And if your work relies largely on that, either whether it's informational or, or, or manufacturing style, if you're just assembling something in, in an industrial sense that follows a set of steps, or if your job is moving information around on spreadsheets, I kind of glorify that, you should be worried because that ability to move information in impersonal ways that, let's face it, a lot of 20th century kind of white-collar middle management work was a version of this. If that's what your job involves primarily, um, you should be thinking about the future in ways that technology will likely eat your lunch there. Wow. And, I mean, it's it feels blunt, but it is something that we all need to be thinking through. What parts of our work can be automated and then in what case do we need to kind of upskill or shift, like you were saying, into that more human element of work? What does that look like to you, Jules? Well, let's look at as a teacher, right? So part of my job involves teaching. And there's elements of that work that are highly creative, improvisational in a sense, um, that are very hard to automate. And then there's elements of that work, uh, marking is one, a lot of the admin stuff that you need to do that are very procedural and half the time I'm, I'm going bring on the robots, right? I, mm. I don't want to be um, correcting spelling errors in a friggin' essay <laughs> or, I, you know, pointing out the same error that you've pointed out a hundred times before. Yeah. Like I, I want automation, smart automation to be able to do that for me and my students. So yeah. they're getting ahead of it. What I want to spend my time doing is having conversations like this with them, right? Yeah. In the classroom or, or via digital media where I'm able to calibrate the information that I'm sharing to the reaction I'm getting to the perception I have of their comprehension. So this is an example of teaching where there's highly human skills, let's call them highly creative and heuristic skills that um, are a super value adding to have a human doing it. And then there's a whole bunch of tasks that I think could be automated and should be automated to the extent they can. And one of the very frustrating things about teaching is having to spend 50% of your time on these routinized algorithmic tasks. Yeah? Yeah. Now, I would say the same is true for medical practitioners, many health practitioners, filling out forms, even, even in high-end examples like radiology, simply pointing out potentially malignant blimps on a, on a scan um, when increasingly AI can do that better. 
maybe that's not a job we need humans to do. Maybe we need humans to be emotionally connecting with patients, coaching them around how to respond to this, you know. And so basically it's a version of that in accounting, in law, in media, in all of the the mainstream professions where where the tasks are routinized algorithmic uh, automation, smart automation can and should do that better, where the tasks are about human connection, creativity, spontaneity, drawing links that are difficult for machines to do, humans should do that and you want to lean into that dimension of your work. Julian, you've got uh, your students who you hopefully are increasingly having these really interesting conversations with. And I guess one of the roles that you will be playing, I imagine, around particularly that coaching space would be getting them ready uh, from an uh, undergraduate point of view, getting them ready to enter a 50-year career career that they have ahead of them. What sort of advice are you giving your, your students and the people that you come into contact with to prepare them for this? <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 first of all, no one quite knows what's going to happen, I say. So I'm always wary when, when futurist types say, you know, this is going to happen. I, I prefer to talk about futures. You know, there's, there's multiple options here. The one, um, we don't know, but we have, we can look at what's happening currently and we can assess what the near future might look like probabilistically. And I encourage them to start thinking of their options in this portfolio sense of probabilities. Second, um, don't feel you're too late because I'm still figuring out what I'm doing and what I, what I want to do. Yeah, well. And I'm 40, right? So, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing in 20s. And in many ways I made mistakes. So it's okay to make mistakes, you know. Yeah. Don't put too much pressure on yourself to get it right too early. Um and then maybe third, I mean, this is something I don't always get to talk about with students, but if they ask me, um, start to think about the notion of compound interest. And I mean that both in a financial sense, if you want to talk about saving, I mean, you, you, it's very powerful. I think Einstein said it's one of the miracles of the universe, but also compounding your skill development through building better habits. Right. So it, it's very easy to... It's very easy to think, um, oh, my God, I need to cram and do this thing and, and, and learn this thing or it's too late or just get overwhelmed with a sense of difficulty in front of you, right? But I really like the author um, of Atomic Habits. It's one of yeah. the books I enjoy on this topic who says, look, success is really this combination of things you can't control like luck and randomness, you know, and things that you can control like strategy and your habits. And that daily process over time is, is what tends to lead to certainly a high probability of success, but you're also making that compounding dynamic your friend. You're doing something for an hour each day that you think is important and you want to develop skill at. Over time, you just get better and better. Yeah. So they're, they're the, that might sound very abstract, but I think the level of abstraction is important because we actually don't know. We can't really pick the winning job, right? We don't know what's going to be there and what's not, but we can pick, I think, um, winning approaches. Yeah. Yeah. And those aspects of any job that have that human connection, that, that concept of, um, I guess you said that heuristic approach, those skill sets will still be needed in the future, but it's having that flexibility and ability to navigate uncertainty, which I. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Kevin Kelly's got this nice line that we need to all learn to become newbies. Kevin Kelly's right. the author that wrote the, wrote the, um, what technology wants and these great books on the history of technology. Um, and so one that is a comfortability egoically with going, shit, I don't know 
what TikTok's about. And literally <laughs> yes, I, was having, yes. I, I don't get it. You know, I was on it for 15 minutes the other day and felt completely, I felt that the sort of specter of addiction looming, right? Wow. I was like, oh my God, like, there's like a crack. I got to get, get this thing away from me. But I was trying to figure it out because no university is on TikTok, someone told me. And I'm like, oh, that's really? a good point. Yeah, no university is insofar as I know. We fact check that claim, but <laughs> this is uh, you know I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if it's true that there's no sort of university presence on TikTok. But where are young people hanging out? Right. The point is, there's going to be there's going to be another TikTok like thing in a couple of years. There's going to be a, a sort of blockchain based version, and we're figuring this stuff out. And the more that you can get over yourself and get good at learning, and just go work and learning are just going to be this entwined you know mm. strand this sort of spiral, um, the better. So, I can't help but wonder whether as we're talking through this idea of which skills will remain and, and which ones are becoming extinct and then also this advice that you're giving, which I understand where you're coming from when, when you sort of disclaimer it with it sounds somewhat abstract or conceptual, but it's, it doesn't make it any less true. Perhaps that's why we see more and more or we are seeing more and more an increase in people changing, in inverted commas, careers because these are such transferable skills. So you've got those yeah. really human-centred skills as opposed to task-based skilled skills and therefore you're more able to flex and move from a medical industry to the finance industry to engineering and I appreciate there are still remains technical skills associated and that sort of uh, level of, of knowledge that you need in those areas in order to do those jobs. But as I say, increasingly over time, uh, I just can't help but think that it will become easier and easier to move from mm. one to the other, if you wish. I think you raise a good point there too, which is is something I try and, and um, offer as advice to young people, younger people, and, um, and forgot to say then, which is picking like – sorting out your Venn diagram of what two or three things can you be at the intersection of that puts you in your own lane or mm, at least in right. a much smaller lane. So I'll, I'll give an example of that, right? Like it's, it's hard to be, so let's take a, a sort of emerging technology and a, a fairly um, established skill set. So health and ambient computing, let's even make it more than that mental health and ambient computing. In case anyone listening doesn't know what I'm referring to, ambient computing is this notion for voice-controlled computing, so Alexa, Siri, etc. And I think it's a pretty safe bet that we're going to get more of this rather than less. Yeah. Um, there's a sort of shift that we're starting to see in wealthy people's homes, at least, where more and more things are voice-controlled, right? Mm. Alexa, what times, you know, interacting with Amazon, consolidated, given Amazon's increasingly consolidated position. So th there's this transition of moving away from phone interaction, looking at a screen to voice control. Mm. Now that has all sorts of ramifications for user experience and privacy, to be honest. But yeah. you know, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Now let, let, let's take you know becoming uh, very skilled in this area, very knowledgeable. That's great. That's that's a pretty good bet for someone that's 20, 22. But add to that expertise in mental health, right? And so when is it that, how, uh, what would these two things together, what would they foreshadow, you know? Um, is there a way of learning to detect um, emotional states, which I, I assume AI is already pretty good at, and make suggestions based on people's level of fragility, their level of happiness or whatever? Is there early um, warning detection for suicide prevention? I mean, th there's a number of ways this could go. 
But if you develop skill and familiarity with both these domains, you're suddenly playing in a much smaller lane. It's much easier to prosecute your argument for expertise. Mm. And uh, that's such a, I guess it kind of leads into our next question, Julianne, of uh, your background working in uh, universities at RMIT. And I know you're super passionate about how young people can practically prepare for their future. One of the things we know in recruitment uh, currently and we will see much more in the future is that there's there's going to be an increasing number of degree qualified young people. And so that's almost like your entry point uh, going forward and into the future. You, you have to have a degree because most competitive people will, uh, which is a shift, I suppose, from previously, from even when uh, Em and I were studying, it's quite a, it's quite different. So I guess I'm keen to know, how do you differentiate yourself in a job market where everyone has a degree? Yeah, so it's a really great question. So there is this inflationary aspect to formal education, right? Where in the 70s, hardly anyone um, had uh, went to university, let alone had PhDs like me, right? Now we produce thousands, seven to 9,000 or something PhDs each year. Um, and you guys probably felt this, right? You come out with an undergrad and it's like, well, I need to do a master's to yeah. further differentiate myself, yeah? And all so the while you're just thousands and thousands of dollars on your help debt, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I actually, um, the stats, so to speak, but, you know, I'm saying that to somebody who's a lecturer, so I probably call them loose stats, but it was uh, Gen X, it was one in four with a degree, Gen Y, which is us, Shell. 50%. At, well, one it? in three, and right. then Gen Z, it's more like one in two. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's really creeping up on us. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. up to 50% is my understanding yeah, of university degrees. So what, the effect that has is weakens the signal, the job market signal of having a degree, right? So mm. this is a, a bit of a nerdy term, but there's kind of two theories in, two major theories in economics around what tertiary education does. And look, I, to, to jump to the end, spoiler alert, I think both are going on, um, but one is this human capital theory that you go to university and you learn a bunch of stuff that you need that makes you a more attractive worker, a better worker for, for prospective jobs. And the other one is, look, university is really just a sorting mechanism for showing who's already pretty smart. It's just that university work, uh, sorry, employers don't know that, right? How do you know? So you, you go, well, so this person's got an MBA from Harvard. They must be smart or Melbourne or whatever it is, ANU. The problem with that is the more you massify the education system, mm. the weaker that signal then becomes, right? I think there's two things here that I'd say. One, I've already said, it's about, it's not just getting a degree in health or tech, it's getting the kind of degree in health tech, right? So you're positioning yeah. yourself um, using more of these combinations, novel combinations of skill sets. And the other one is, and, and perhaps more importantly, is it's less about standing on your marks and degree itself. It's more about demonstrating a portfolio of things you've done, you know, pointing to that in job uh, scenarios, job, job like interviews. interviews. Yeah, what I was yeah, looking yeah. For. yeah, yeah. So like in my course, for example, um, it's, it's called driving innovation in organisations, but it's what's called a, a work integrated learning subject, which basically just means students are largely working on real things, you know, with real organisations, real projects. They, do, they develop a proposal for innovation to a company or an organisation and then they do what they say they're going to do as a deliverable. Now, the reason I think these, this sort of way of style of learning, if you like, is so good because at the end of it, they've got this, they've got this real deck of slides and real set of experiments that they ran. 
able to say, look, we, we did this, we found this, we recommended this. I would say that's much more powerful in a, um, when you're applying for work than just saying, I got a high distinction on my second year course in like, who, who cares, right? How do you know with all the, the accusations of cheating and all this stuff, how do you yeah. know what that is? Where if someone can speak clearly and cogently to work they've actually done, um, that's, that's what you want to hear as an employer. And so are you seeing that, Julian, across all universities, that I guess more practical component of learning or is that something that we're still at the beginning of? I, I think um, many universities incorporate it. And yeah. I, I, I don't want to say anything that sounds like some parochial kind of defence of RMIT, but this is the, universities like RMIT, UTS, Swinburne, the, the technology universities, um, traditionally they've tried to be more applied, more industry engaged, right? Mm. Whereas the, the Sandstone institutions, you know, the Melbournes, the Monashes, at, at least classically, and again, it's not supposed to be a, a sort of subtle put down, but you know, the, the, the philosophy, political science, you know, these classic uh, disciplines, um, that was their focus. And in a way, I think the strength of the, the sort of university I'm with now is um, this notion of applied work is more important than yeah. ever, um, especially in for business that's changing so rapidly and being transformed by technology. And that's so true, Jules, because, I, I mean, even just my own experience from going from, I won't name the other uni I was at before I went to RMIT, but I noticed a huge difference uh, at, a, at RMIT that it was very practical. It was like, you need to do this project, build this prototype, you need to present it, and you'll get feedback rather than being theoretical. And that's such an important thing. When you're going to spend 50 grand on a master's or whatever, you need to be doing those practical uh, you need to go to a uni that's going to give you the practical skills because you can pay the same money and just be writing essay after essay but not actually getting the skill set that's going to set you up to land the job. Yeah, I think this is a really important point. So one way of thinking about what university is, it's this bundle of different um, activities or services, right? So one of those is this vocational training aspect. And the other, but that's not the only thing it does. I mean, because the, the opposition argument here as well, university is about cultivating critical thinking and building skills in, you know, literacy. I don't mean learning to read, but crafting an argument in a, there's a real skill that you can learn when you have to craft an argument in 2000 words, right? Mm. Um, the thing I struggled to when I went into the workplace and my education was more on the, the sort of long essay thing is I remember sitting there the first time at the computer and going, well, what do I do? Like, mm. I, I, you know, no one was asking me to write a two and a half thousand word essay discussing globalization's impact on the education system. Like they were saying, well, run this program, manage this budget, yes. you know, go, go out and speak to teachers and get them interested. And so there were these very, I mean, you could call them vocational, but in many ways around social and emotional aspects around getting people excited about something, explaining something quickly, um, you know, asking, learning to sell, and yeah. I mean that in the, the broader sense, you know, convincing people to do stuff, um, that I just had no training. I didn't even really know where to start, you know. I had to figure it all out on the job, and I wasn't very good at it either. So I think universities actually do a disservice when they neglect yeah. those things because you might say traditionally the, the private sector or, or industry had more of a role in cultivating this stuff through cadetships, et cetera internships yeah. but 
I think a lot of workplaces expect students or, or, or get frustrated if they feel students can't come out and hit the ground running with this stuff. And so I think university is a great place to cultivate it. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I'd love your insight into, so, so let's say right now you're listening to this episode and you're at uni, but you don't actually know uh, how to get those, build those practical skills we're talking about. Julian, what can um, our listeners be doing to leverage the university's support to build those practical skills that are going to set them up for the future? Yeah, so this is this is like an invitation to this point around platform, right? The, the university is a platform that yeah. um, you and I briefly discussed. Yeah. Uh, so the, the metaphor I try and set up for my students is from lecture one, and I say this to the entrepreneurship program um, in general, all, all the students, look, you can treat university like you're playing Tetris and things just come at you and I'm sure, I imagine everyone still knows what Tetris is, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Do you know it, it, this is really like... This could be overshare, but I, the only game I have on my phone is Tetris. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey Tetris was a great game, great innovation, right? But it's, it's, it's a simple game. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll even foreshadow where I'm going here. I said there's, there's kind of two computer game versions of Uni. One is Tetris and one is something more like World of Warcraft, which, full disclosure, I've never actually freaking played. I just understand what an open-world video game is, right? So the first scenario you're sitting there waiting for your teacher to give you work and then, it, you know, presumably it just gets harder and faster as you progress through second year, third year, fourth year. But you're effectively doing the same stuff, right? You're, you're getting your marks, you're doing your essays or your tests or whatever. I, I see that as a, as a kind of diminishing return, a game of diminishing returns, right? The, the second approach I, I liken to what at least I imagine World of Warcraft is like from the photos I've seen. <laughs> you know, this, this is where it's an open world and you're not told which direction to go in. It's up to you to find your quest. You know, who are you going to work with? Who mm. are your partners going to be? What are their complementary skills to yours? Yeah. Where's the treasure that you've got to go and find? You know, uh, where are the hidden trapdoors and the, the, the tools and things that you need to accumulate? And although that may sound a bit cheesy from an old geezer saying it to <laughs> you know, an 18-year-old or something. It's like, dude. It's all <laughs> you right. You've what, got a young what? voice. You do have a young voice. <laughs> you they go. don't right. know. They don't know. Just yeah, say yeah, you're yeah. 29. <laughs> yeah, as long as you can't see my grey hair. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know how that lands. So it seems to for some students. But the point is, if you think of university as a platform where there are resources and it's up to you to navigate your path through it and use it that way, I think it can be a fantastic experience. So, for example, to speak really practically, um, RMIT has this, the Activator, which is a, a sort of accelerator for um, entrepreneurial ideas. And, and many universities, you know, Melbourne has its map one, Swinburne's got one. Many universities have these. Deakin has one, um, Shaw Monash has one. I just don't know the name. This is increasingly the sort of way that you, that I think universities should be navigated, where you come up with an idea, if you can, rooted in your disciplinary expertise, you know, maybe it's fashion or something, maybe it's um, material science or whatever it is, and try and think of it as um, a potential innovation, something new, um, mm. and enrol in a program like that. Find other collaborators, you know, with complementary skills, ideally, someone in marketing, someone in uh, business logistics or something. Um, bring them together. The, the classic one is the, the hacker, the hustler, the hipster, if you heard those, maybe a hound, <laughs> right? You know, uh, someone that can make stuff, hacker, someone that can design things and understands kind of human needs, uh, hipster, and, and hustler, someone that understands business, can sell, et cetera. Um, bring together these complementarities in, in multidisciplinary teams 
and try and see if you can sell an idea. And the, the, the point isn't so much whether you're successful, but when you said, how do you build these skills? The point is you start by starting. You start yeah. by trying to create something that even if it's just a freaking website that someone might click on and say, tell me more. Yeah. You, you're testing whether you can put together a value proposition. And my argument would be that skill, it actually doesn't matter what industry is, even if you go into the public service and you're crafting policy, this idea of understanding the nature of value propositions, understanding novel combinations of ideas, being able to communicate them in cogent and effective ways. These are sort of master skills of the new economy. And you, you don't learn them by writing essays and doing tests. You learn them by creating new stuff. And taking some risks, it sounds like. There's an element where you have to put yourself out there and take that initiative as a, a student um, in order to get that spot in the workforce that you're looking for. I mean, that's a huge part. You guys, I mean, you, you guys are millennials, right? You yeah. must have felt that same kind of risk starting this podcast, I assume. You know, you, 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 you what is it? You got to risk it to win the biscuit. You know, you don't, you don't get the rewards. <laughs> I think they without- say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that another old old geezer thing? I, I reckon that could be an old geezer. It might. <laughs> it might have a comeback though. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah but yeah, that, you're I right. That's what the kids were saying. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you have that one. Uh, yeah, it's a good point though. It's certainly, it's that out of comfort zone. Haven't done this before, and I remember personally thinking, well, what's the worst that can happen? We'll give it a go, and and if it flops, it will have been a good adventure. So. Um, you know, I think if you can learn something from everything, then that's all part of the fun, yeah, um, to your point. And, I mean, I'm interested, Jules, you, you, when you and I had this phone call the other day and you actually mentioned it at the beginning, I think, Em, you mentioned it, you said just it sounds like you're vibing your way through your career uh, to you, Julian, and you've talked to me about how vibe is really important when we think about the future of work and I guess future-proofing our career. Can you just tell me a bit more about that? Because it sounds kind of naff, doesn't it? It sounds like it sounds like a joke, right? You know, it's all about the vibe, right? This I, is the, I love this. it. I think it sounds cool, but yeah. I really <laughs> like it too. Yeah. Well, this is immortalized, right? In the in this in the, the castle, that uh, yeah. classic Australian film. It's it's Marbo. It's vibe. It's you know. So sometimes vibe is used. Um, Actually, I think this point is, is more uh, profound. I don't mean my point, but this this point about the use of the word vibe is more important than we might give. Uh, it might seem so. People often use the, vi- the word vibe when they're struggling to explain um, the way a bunch of things hang together, right? So in that example, the council is saying the vibe because he doesn't really understand the legislative <laughs> <laughs> um, consequence of of Marbo's the, the, the legal decision, but. If you say um, there's something about that cafe, it's just a vibe, right? Or there's yeah. something about that party or there's something about that teacher or that, I mean, almost insert any profession in there. I don't know why I like that hairdresser so much, but there's something about the vibe of the yeah. place, right? So what we were talking about is, well, what's that really gesturing towards? Um, and my argument, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been writing, <laughs> I've been doing the, writing this, this uh, torturous paper that I'm actually very proud of, but won't come out for another friggin' six months. This is how academia works <laughs> on, on this very notion in co-working spaces. You know, yeah. the, the vibe is actually this assemblage of elements from material in the co-working context, material environment, music, social interactions of other people, the smell, the sound of the place. It's all these elements coming together that's apprehended as this experience of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And my point about this in our conversation was 
usually if you've got a good vibe, whether it's a business or an individual, usually that means you're bringing together a, a range of factors in ways people can't quite analytically separate. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we were talking about podcasting, I think, and I was saying, well, Joe Rogan's podcast, it has a kind of vibe, right? Yeah. I mean, he's got his physical space there. He's got his way of asking questions. He's got his unique history, this weird combination of mixed martial arts and, and comedy, and, and it all just comes together, whether you like it or you don't like it, with this very distinct flavour to it. You know, and so we, we fall back on words like flavour, you know, uh, set of properties, features, but vibe is quite a good word there, right? Yeah. Spanish to say la onda is this beautiful <laughs> word, you know. They say, uh, ese lugar tiene buena onda, you know, it's got, it's, this place has a good vibe. But I they love use the that word- uh, it's, yeah, you could just keep talking in Spanish and we'd be like, yeah, this is great. I'd feel very relaxed. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> at 4, at 4 p.m. on yeah. a Friday. Keep going, Julian. <laughs> yeah, bueno. Um, yeah, just, t- I don't know why that came to me then, but it, it, what's funny is that word, it's not supposed to, to flex on it, but that word is used in a very similar way. Que onda, the Mexicans say, que onda, you know, what's the vibe? How's it going, right? So, um, this word is an interesting one, is point one. It, it shouldn't be dismissed as if once once it's evoked, it means someone doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. I'd say almost the opposite. It's usually pointing to this subtle assemblage of value creation that's difficult to pin down. Yeah. Now, the relevance of this for our discussion is um, when we if we go back to the, the AI sort of routinized forms of work, yeah. if you're able to cultivate a particular vibe, a distinct vibe in the way you do things, the way you speak, the way you teach, the way you advise the way you run meetings, you know, um, you've probably got something that's that's non-generic, yeah? I yes. mean, that's, that's another way of saying this, right? Non-generic, difficult to break down and routinize, difficult for a machine to replicate, uh, difficult to commodify and just get someone in, in a low-cost jurisdiction place like India or the Philippines to do in a call center, right? So there, there actually is something I think quite important about trying to work out as, as a young person it's anyone, but we're, we're thinking about young people here. Well, what is my vibe, my professional vibe? Yes, yeah, so good. Like, and that, I that's love be- that so much. I do too. And it's just bringing back all of these other conversations that we've had where we've talked about um, your brand, your professional brand or your personal brand. And I think vibe is, I'm going to start inserting the word vibe instead of brand well, from now on. I like it because it's not it's not marketing speak. It's actually more intangible than that. I love that there's this distinctive about who you are as a person that if you can tap into that and go, what is that vibe that I bring to uh, the way I work, the impact that I want to have at work that sets you apart, that's your kind of value proposition, that unique thing that you bring. I just, I mm. love it. It's and so embrace good. that. And it does, you're right, it feels more inside out you know you're bringing it from an innate place yeah that's so good Jules and I really appreciate your candor and honesty with I guess your experience I love hearing that um you know for that first kind of 10 years or or so you felt like you kind of meandered I suppose around my words not yours but but then eventually found your impact I suppose in that time or your desire or values was to experience the world and then later on in life found that kind of full-time employment. That, I guess, is a really key thing that I think we need to shake up of. There is no right career for people. There's, it's what do you value? What's important to you? If that's full-time employment, great. But if not, 
actually that's fine. We don't want, there isn't one size fits all. And so I love hearing your journey and story and how that's kind of unfolded for you over the last 20 years. Jules, so good to have you hanging out with us today. I love all of your insights. Thank you. We really appreciate your time with us today. And I just want to say, I'd encourage any of our listeners to connect with Julian on LinkedIn, Julian Waters Lynch, find him, connect with him. And I also want to plug RMIT because, Em, you know I'm a big fan of RMIT. Oh, yeah. I have really been picking up talking about vibes. I've been picking up that vibe from you. And so I wish I actually had you as a lecturer when I was there, Jules, but unfortunately missed that boat. But great to connect with you and thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's a lot of fun talking about this stuff. So thanks. Great. We will chat soon. Thanks, Jules. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.